All right, thank you for uh, that. Can I ask you now to stand when we're going to read our passage together? Just to kind of, um, we're going to read Luke 7, 36 to 50, so either Bible in hand you can read, or if you want to follow along on the screen, uh, this is going to be the first installment of a new series for us. So this is going to be Luke 7, 36 to 50. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who... And what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You may have a seat. One of my seminary professors, his name is Dr. Timothy Paul Jones, writes this in his book, Trained in the Fear of God. I'll have the quote on the screen. God created us as relational creatures to eat together and to talk to one another. Some of the most important conversations we ever have come at mealtimes. It is not coincidental that some of the most important conversations that Jesus had about the significance of his death were around a table, looking at one another, eye to eye, and eating together. This morning we're starting, again, a short series leading up to Easter Day, Easter Sunday, called Meals with Jesus. And each week we're going to dig into a story from the Gospel of Luke that takes place, as you might guess, at a meal. And food and eating is all over the Gospels, which is, I think, one of the many reasons why the Bible has proven to be so cross-cultural and so cross-generational, because all people from all times eat all the time. And so it's always going to be this relatable topic. And food is especially prominent in the Gospel of Luke. Luke was a first century foodie. And so this series is going to have four messages, including Good Friday, But it could be way longer because there are nine passages in Luke where Jesus participates in a meal. And there is a grand total of 72 times in Luke's gospel alone where food is mentioned in some way. 
And I don't think it's a stretch to say that meals and table fellowship play a major part of the Gospels because meals are uniquely impactful throughout the human experience, for better or for worse. Walls come down when people eat together. Things get exposed when people eat together. Again, sometimes for better and sometimes for worse. But there is a vulnerability of sitting at a table, looking at somebody else and eating with them. Space gets created in those moments for things to be revealed. Now this morning, we're not going to have time to dig into every little detail of this story, which is, you know me by now, I just what I love to do. I love going verse by verse and trying to get every detail. But this morning, we're going to do it a little bit differently. Now we're going to approach this story from three different vantage points. Number one, what does this story tell us about Simon? Number two, what does this story tell us about the woman? And then thirdly, what does this story tell us about Jesus? So number one, what does this story tell us about Simon? Well, we find out right away that Simon is a Pharisee. The Pharisees, as many of you know, were the ultra-conservative side of the Jewish people. They were the ones who thought that any kind of mix, either theologically or culturally, with Rome was sinful. And so they were the basically self-righteous gatekeepers of Jewish culture by adhering to strict Jewish law, many times law of their own creation. And at this point in Luke's gospel, we're in chapter 7, the Pharisees are already clashing with Jesus. The Pharisees already have a problem with him because he is so, he's growing so prominently. His popularity is growing. By chapter 5 in the gospel of Luke, crowds were already starting to gather and follow him around. Crowds that included these skeptical Pharisees who were looking for opportunities to contradict him in front of the crowds, put him in his place. Because Jesus is not educated like they are. He should not be claiming this kind of authority. And even worse, people should not be flocking to him from all over Judea. And among the many issues they have with Jesus, they cannot stand the fact that he is willing to even eat with sinners. He would go to their homes He would recline at their tables, tax collectors and prostitutes and others, and he would eat with them. In the first century, it was a big deal. Who you ate with and who you did not eat with said a lot. Not totally dissimilar to today. So now Simon himself says, I'm going to invite Jesus over for a meal. And here's the thing, we're not told why he does it. Could we give Simon the benefit of the doubt here and say he wanted to get to know Jesus better. He wanted to try to understand him. He sees things are getting really tense, and he thinks maybe we can settle this over a meal, come to an understanding. Or maybe this was a strategic step in order to silence Jesus. We don't know, but we are given some clues, and the first clue is not great for Simon. And that Jesus came in, and Simon did not give him the traditional greeting. Understanding the context of meal parties during this time, I think, helps to shed light on this story. Uh, Because in the first century, the nicer homes had an open courtyard in the middle of the home. 
And in good weather, these meals would be held outdoors. And here's the thing about them. People from the community would be permitted to come be spectators of the meal. And they would line the outer perimeter of the courtyard and watch these prominent people eat and talk. And that sounds strange to us. We have to admit that. And yet again, or then again, I am sure that if we told them that 2,000 years later, tens of thousands of people would go into an arena to watch a bunch of men hit each other for three hours at a football game would sound ridiculous to them. All right, so to each their own. But when the guests would arrive for the dinner, not the spectators, the guests for the meal, the host would greet them at the door, put a hand on their shoulder, and give them a kiss on the cheek. The host would then arrange for the guests' feet to be washed, whether themselves or more likely a servant. And then, commonly, some oil or incense would be put on their heads as a fragrance. So if you think about this today, uh, when people, I mean, again, this is like pre-COVID, you got to think about this. When people actually came to your house for meals, do you remember that? Um, It was awesome, right? Like maybe someday again. But uh, especially if somebody came who they were coming for the first time, the first time they're eating at their house, at your house, there are certain things we do the moment they come in the door. Now, there are different cultures that have different customs of bringing people into their home, which are, um, I think, good to experience. But even universally, we can say there's a common courtesy that you greet the person when they come in. You don't just leave the door open and just hope that they find their way where they're supposed to go to the table. You offer to take their coat. You give them some guidance on where to go. You shake hands. You give a hug. You offer them something. In general, we know that when somebody comes to your home for a meal, there's an attentiveness at their arrival. Simon does none of this. Maybe out of fear of being judged or seen by other Pharisees, or maybe because he really has no interest in making Jesus feel welcomed. And then they're sitting at the table, reclining at the table, Simon realizes that a woman has come in, and now there's a woman who's at Jesus' feet, and there's a scene starting to take place that people are beginning to notice in his home. Notice he does not rush to jump up and rush her out, probably because he doesn't want to ruin his own party. He doesn't want to be known for around town as the sinner who came in and ruined his party at his house. He would probably much rather quietly dispose of her scold her privately, and then keep on with the meal. And he's bothered that Jesus is not doing anything here to help him out. He's just letting it happen. He's not sending her on her way. And so Simon thinks to himself, man, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. So this makes me think that Simon actually had not made up his mind about Jesus going into this meal yet. Maybe the meal began, he said, what if he actually is a prophet? We need to deal with this. But now this moment confirms he is in fact not a prophet because if he was, he'd know who he's dealing with. And in thinking this, Simon is exposed. When he looked at this woman, all he saw was her sin. She is the, in his words, sort of woman you don't associate with. 
He's an upright Pharisee. He would never stoop so low to minister to those below his status. That would only threaten his power. That would only ruin his reputation. So his mind was made up the moment he looked at her. Oh, I know her. She's a sinner. And that's not a careful theological statement that Simon is making. He's not like, she's a sinner in the same way that I am a sinner in need of God's grace. That's not what Simon is saying. He's making an identity statement. She is the kind of person we don't associate with. She would never be a guest at my table. Rosaria Butterfield, she's the author of the book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, book on hospitality. That We, are, we ironically did a class on that like a week before COVID hit. So uh, if you took that class, just wait to apply it. Um, But she talks about the vital need for Christians to intentionally share their table with those who do not look like them or that is not a part of their group as the world would define it. And she has this short quote that I have been trying to process for a year. It says this, table fellowship that depends on identity sameness banks on a false understanding of personhood. To only associate with those and especially eat with those who you perceive as someone in your camp or in your tribe or on your level or in your group or whatever you would call it is built on the denial of human beings sharing an intimate sameness as being made in the image of God. When Simon saw this woman, he did not see a fellow human being made in God's image like him. He saw a worldly constructed identity based on sin that he thought was worse than his own and made her untouchable. Which in turn made him feel a false sense of security about himself and his own righteousness because in order to think so highly of yourself, you need someone or a group of others to look down upon, don't you? And so I don't think it's an overstatement to say that all injustice in our world, from the individual to the interpersonal to the systemic against whole groups of people is at its root a failure to see others as human beings made in the image of the same God you were made in. And I think if there's anything that needs reforming in the church, it's a reformation surrounding the Imago Dei, the image of God in all people. So that's number one. Let's keep going. Number two. Now, what does this story tell us about the woman? And here I want to correct, I think, a common mistake that people make when reading this story. That, that, that this woman came to this meal unsaved. That this woman came to the meal feeling guilty of her own sin because of what she's done, and yet in the boldness of, sh- of pouring expensive oil on Jesus' feet, then Jesus decided to save her. That's the mistake, that she came to this meal lost, but then she left the meal saved. If we did say that, it would turn everything we say about salvation on its head, that it's good works is the reason why Jesus saves us. When in fact, good works is not the reason God saves anyone. It is by grace through faith, which results in good works, right? 
Good works, not the reason, but the result of salvation. And that misconception is important to point out because it is a misconception that many people make about their own lives. Dare I say, most professing believers in this country believe that they are saved because of their good works, because they're a good person. And God sees that they're good works and decides to reward them at the end of their life with salvation. And conversely, if you're not a good person, however you define good, if you're a sinner with a dirty, shameful past, you are beyond the realm of being the kind of person who can be saved. An outsider. But this woman was saved before she entered the home. We're not told when or where, but remember I spoke earlier that at this point in the Gospel of Luke, he has already grown in popularity. There have been crowds that have already been following him. Crowds who inevitably heard Jesus teaching. Teaching which in the Gospel of Mark was summed up this way, that the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news. What's the good news? Well, in the previous chapter, Luke 6, Luke gives his account of the Sermon on the Mount, which we are familiar with. Teachings like, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. The good news is that Jesus came to save sinners. The good news is that he came to exalt the lowly and to dismantle the proud. So this woman heard Jesus teach, and she was saved. And now, out of an overwhelming gratitude and affection for Jesus, she wanted to anoint him with oil, not to repay him, but out of her deep love for him, because of his forgiveness for her. But imagine the courage it took for her to do this. Knowing the cost of what she was about to do, not just material cost, bringing the oil, but the social cost. She is going into a man's home who she knows despises her. Amongst probably other people who despise her, look down upon her. And yet, When you have been saved by grace, there are no limits on the risks you will take for the sake of Jesus' holy name. John Piper writes in his book, Bloodlines, Christ does not call us to a prudent life, but to a God-centered, Christ-exalting, justice-advancing, countercultural, risk-taking life of love and courage. And so she goes, and I don't think she went with the intention to make a scene. I think she wanted to slip in amongst the crowd, watching, and quietly work her way to Jesus and anoint his feet and then walk out. So the setup of meals is that this is not a big oak table where everybody's sitting at chairs, but it's a table that is close to the ground that everybody would recline at. So the common posture for somebody sitting at a meal, if this was the end of the table, is that you would put your left elbow on, you'd have your right elbow out, and your feet would be laying behind you. If I was stronger and more flexible, I'd show you that right here. So that's the position. So if you were looking at this from a bird's eye view, you would just see feet in a big circle circling in the table. 
and she gets to his feet, maybe all is going to plan, maybe not everybody's really noticing, but then she begins to weep. And this is not the getting choked up kind of crying that maybe looks kind of cute on television, where she's sniffling and a single tear rolls down her cheek. This is the uncontrollable, let it all out, took me off guard kind of weeping that is drenching his feet with tears. And I think we know this is not even what she expected to happen because she had nothing to dry his feet. And I know I said I wasn't going to dig into every detail, but you guys don't have any plans today, do you? No, no one has plans. So do you notice what she did? While she is weeping, tears are getting his feet all wet, which are unwashed feet, remember? So they're dirty, dusty feet, so now it's probably getting muddy, probably like just really messy here. She wipes them with what? Her hair. Did you know that the Pharisees had written into their law that for a woman to let her hair down in public was a greater offense than even, pardon me for the picture, removing their clothes. If she were to take her clothes off, it would have been less offensive in their eyes than for her to let her hair down. It was the height of indecency. But what a symbolic picture for us. Here's a woman saved by grace, the bride of Christ, because a woman was only allowed to let her hair down in the presence of her husband. The bride of Christ, which the name Paul gives to the church, wiping her Savior's feet and then anoints them with oil. But this is important. She is not weeping because of the guilt of her sin or the shame of her former identity. She is weeping because of the powerful and restorative grace of God that overcame that guilt and shame. She's there in the first place, not in order to get saved, but because she already was saved. Do you remember the time when it first hit you what God has done for you? The emotions that overcame you of all that you did or were, that Jesus canceled the debt, restored, redeemed, reconciled to herself. She could not control it when she came in his presence. And then finally, number three, what does the story tell us about Jesus? First off, that Jesus is willing to eat with anyone who is willing to eat with him. The Pharisees would question why he would even associate with sinners. The, again, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, those who they looked down upon. Which, you know what that makes me initially think when I read the Pharisees' reaction? I go, why would Jesus ever want to eat with the Pharisees? Those who are self-righteous, suffocating to be around. And so this story, even as I was reading and studying, gave me a corrective. Because I was doing the very thing the Pharisees were doing, but applying it to them. Why would he even want to eat with them? But Jesus was invited by Simon who at best had mixed intentions toward him, and he said, yes, because why? Pharisees are also image-bearing human beings. 
Pharisees are lost and in need of a savior. And Jesus knows things happen at mealtime. Walls come down at mealtime. Things get revealed. Table fellowship exposes ways that maybe other interactions do not. There's that vulnerability of eating with others. And so he goes. He's immediately disrespected by Simon. He's not even given a greeting. My guess is the others got it. He doesn't, and he doesn't even leave. I mean, I'm, if I'm at that story, I'm still, okay, Jesus, I understand that you had good intentions, but he does not even give you that, man. You turn around and walk out. Jesus stays, goes, reclines at the table. And then when this woman approaches him at some point in the meal, discreetly at first, and the emotions take over, he, looking at her, does not stop her, doesn't rush her out. She's drenching his feet with tears, drying it, anointing it, and he stays still. He doesn't move. He doesn't talk. And remember, the author of this story, Luke, tells us that Simon said to himself, did you catch that detail? He said to himself, this man were a prophet, he would have known. Which means he was either thinking that or saying it very quietly so no one can hear. And then Jesus finally speaks and he goes, Simon, I have something to say to you. Proving in that moment that Simon was wrong on both levels. Not only is he a prophet because he knows full well about this woman and her story, but he's even more than a prophet because he knows what Simon is thinking. He's God. He tells him a short parable. Two people are in debt, one owed 50 denarii and one 500 denarii. And the moneylender forgives their debt, cancels it out. Simon, who's going to love him more? Simon, using very basic logic skills, the one with the larger debt. Jesus affirms, you're right, Simon. And then here's another detail I never noticed until studying the passage this time. Do you picture Jesus' body language here? Put yourself in the courtyard looking at this scene. He turns to the woman, but he's still talking to Simon. And I think it's the most powerful line in the story. Do you see this woman? Do you see her? Simon is thinking... Of course I do. Everyone does. Because we all know what kind of woman she is. And she's trying to ruin my dinner party. And Jesus says, no, Simon. Eyes locked on the woman. Do you see her? I came into this house, and you did nothing. You showed me no love, no respect, no greeting, no kiss, no washing, no oil. She washed my feet with her hair and her tears. She anointed them. And then he connects the dots for Simon. She is showing love because she knows she has been forgiven. She loves much because she has been forgiven of much. And then turns it back on him. But he, who is forgiven little, loves little. And now, eyes back to the woman, he says to her, knowing that everyone is watching, everyone is listening, he says to her, your sins are forgiven, but is very careful with his words when he says, your faith has saved you, go in peace. 
Jesus making it crystal clear to all who are listening, and by extension, the billions of people who are at this meal like us as we read this story, like me and you, that the woman was saved not because she wept at Jesus' feet. She was not saved because she brought the expensive oil. She was saved by faith, which the love she is showing is the evidence of. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. As we approach Easter, let us be clear in affirming what has been and what always will be true that our God is a God of grace, that our God pushes no one away from the table. Grace Church, do you see this woman? When you look at other people, what's the first thing you see? An image bearer or someone to avoid? When you look at yourself, what's the first thing you see? Your past your sin, or do you see an image bearer who can love much because we can be forgiven of much? Let me finish with this quote. Thabiti Anabwile says about this story, quote, to be a big sinner is not the worst thing. To not ask forgiveness through faith in Jesus is. You can recover from a sinful past. The church is full of people who have, and the people said amen. But there is no recovery from God's judgment. Simon and this woman represent two stories. Which story is yours? Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your word. We're grateful how through the narrative of story, you point us to the cross And as we even prepare our own hearts approaching Easter, Lord, I pray that we would be driven to the cross. The cross is the objective evidence that you push no one away from the table. That all sinners, the self-righteous like the Pharisees and this woman from this city can find their rest in you, and so can we. Father, allow us to see ourselves as you see us. Allow us to see others as you see them. And Father, we pray that you would grow in us a desire to love and show love for you because of how much you have done for us. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Would you please stand as we sing in Christ alone as we prepare for communion.